Detroit. The Detroit Common Council wants to save the city's youth from the evils of pinball. The council ruled that anyone 15 or under cannot play pinball unless accompanied by a parent or a guardian. In addition, those under 18 cannot play the pinball machines between 6 a.m. and 4 p.m. This strikes at the very heartland of men's... I don't know what the hell it is. Man, something. Bring it up there, Herod, please. Can't play pinball. I mean... Oh. (laughs) Hey, Bob, I want to play pinball. I can just see all those mothers gathered in there with the kids hunched over the pinball machine. Now, a lot of you never played this. I must I must tell you, a lot of, uh, I know, a lot of clean limb types never played the pinball machine. Do you agree, Herb? You did. You did? Right. Can you imagine taking your mother or a qualified guardian in to the candy store to play the pinball? <laughs> oh, wow, wait, man. You know, uh... You see, I, I think, you know what I think is beginning to happen to our world? I'm really beginning to believe this, and I never thought I would, but I am. I'm beginning to believe that we are now over-governed. I mean, I, I think every damn thing we want to do in our life, we, we somehow call upon the authorities to take care of it. That I mean, the government, you know. And then when it all falls down, then we get mad at the government. You know? <laughs> hey. I mean, you know, the obvious solution, if you don't want your kid to play pinball, you don't let him play pinball, that's all, you know. Kick him around a little bit. But, uh, in, in, uh, no, no, you got to, you know, the city council has to rule it, no pinball machines. And and I, I uh, you know, I, I'm thinking about this, you know, because some of the great performers I've ever seen, uh, some of the really great performers, uh, were pinball players in secret. I mean, let's face it, I don't think Bolas's mother knew that he was considered the, well, he was the Roger Maris of pinball players in our neighborhood. He was just, you know, non-career. And uh, when Bolas was hunched over the pinball machine, we had one called Olympics. You know, they have all these great names. It was called Olympics. And it showed all these people jumping and running, guys, and pole vaults and all that kind of stuff, you know, and you had bumpers and flippers and all that stuff. And to see Bolas hunched over... The Olympics game down at George's bowling alley was to see an artist at work, a man totally at one with his medium, hanging over that machine, and he would move, you know, subtly. He had had fantastic moves. I mean, just the slightest muscle movement, you couldn't even see it, would make that ball go down through flippers, and he'd get somebody, you hear, doing, 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 ding, 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 doing, doing, doing. And you knew that Bolas was beating the hell out of the Olympic game. And there wasn't hardly one of us who could even come up to the basic minimum score on that game to win a free game. Bolas used to knock off free games, you know, with his, with his eyes closed. He, could, he just knew by the feel of the machine where the ball was. And I can't imagine him bringing his mother down to George's bowling alley to watch him play Olympics. But this is the age where mothers do these. <laughs> you know, and another thing, there's a friend of mine who teaches school. He says, my God, he says, you wouldn't, he says, you would not believe the, 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 the mother involvement with, with, with school these days. So if a kid gets a B instead of an A, the mother's down there. Wanting to know why. And then writing a letter to the school board to have him fired. <laughs> you know, it's your fault. Charlie's a very smart kid. It's your fault. After all, Charlie should have gotten an A. 
It does. If you had taught him right, he would have gotten an A. Nobody wants to concede that half the kids in the world got got cottage cheese between the ears. Just like the rest of the population, right? And we all admit that the world is full of Archie Bunkers, but the world is full of Archie Bunker kids, too. Would you please bring that on? Come on, Effie. Let's go. Tonight I want to sing about all the dumb kids, the dummies everywhere they are found. The guys that can't add to, and to, and come up with, well, the obvious number five. Oh, I want to salute the dumb, dumb, dumbs, wherever they might be, be to subject of, uh, of a man chicanery to man. I was thinking about that pinball thing. And, uh, and I'm not about to, uh, to destroy the morals of the, uh, you know, the uh, kid types that may be listening. However, there are techniques which I learned in my checkered career, uh, techniques that will enable a man or a kid to beat any machine that's ever been made. You know these techniques, don't you? There's an old, there's an old, uh, well, let's say there's an old uh, axiom among scientists, and that is that any machine that man can invent, he can also invent the counter machine. In other words, uh, uh, you think that the that the computers are beating you. Well, there's a lot of ways to beat computers, <laughs> and this is a. This is an unfortunate fact, and it, it really works that way. But on the other hand, the mind... See, the thing that sets the mind of man off apart from all other things is its complete grasp of evil. I mean it. that The machines are basically not evil. They're just chunks of metal and plastic and fiberglass and things like that. They, yeah, they only do what... Uh, you know, they only do what man wills them to do. Uh, you, you, it's easy enough for you to get angry about, uh, say, nuclear bombs. But a nuclear bomb is just a lot of pipe hooked together. <laughs> you know, a lot of pieces of metal and stuff like that. It's what you do with it. And that's what makes the difference. And it's the mind of man that is always on the alert for new avenues of evil. Did you read about this uh, religious organization? That uh, was recently in the news. Did you hear that story yesterday, the day before? It's, a, it's in fact still in the news. Well, it was some some religious crowd, you know, that's going around passing out pamphlets about money is the root of all evil, and uh, they were really mad about money, and they just recently busted them. It turns out they had a printing plant in their little old uh, uh, sanctorum there, and they were turning out their own twenty dollar bills. 
<laughs> well, there you go, you see. Uh, no matter where you turn, you find that, that man's mind will always look for the loophole. In the most totally unexpected places. Like, uh, here's, here's one here, for example. A guy uh, had a three-car garage stolen. He came home one night, and his garage was gone. Yeah, yeah, you know, just gone, that's all. He says, what the hell is this? He drove up his driveway, nothing there. His three-car garage was gone, and nobody noticed it being taken. Now, somebody's covering up. There's hanky-panky there at the crossroads. And uh, watching these various little straws in the wind uh, make you realize that man is not necessarily the creature that novelists would have you believe he is. Now, one of my very first... Uh, now, the only reason I occasionally refer to uh, mythical or otherwise childhood is that during childhood, or the age of comparative childhood, is the time when we really either learn about our fellow man or we don't. Now, I, I propose to you that many a kid uh, has grown up to the age of 18 or 19, and because of the sheltered existence he has lived, by the time he's an adult, he is totally innocent as to what mankind is, the nature of man. And for that reason, he will be continually, <laughs> either he will alternately be blown by the winds of idealism and romanticism or shot down by the evil flack, the anti-aircraft fire of realism. <clears throat> he can't figure out what's going on. Now, if at the age of... At the age of three, you were already uh, well acquainted with the various wiles of the card sharks, the pool players, the heisters, and the uh, the grifters of the world. You're not going to be surprised at 18 that guys are out uh, shucking you like a pigeon, right? And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really here advocating <laughs> what they ought to have from the age of about three on. They ought to have courses in kindergarten in chicanery. You know, instead of reading about, uh, you know, gooey little things like Dr. Seuss and the animal that, uh, and the Grinch that stole Christmas and Jonathan Livingston Seagull and all that other pap, uh, at, at about the age of three, the kid should, uh, you know, learn how to palm a card. Uh, <laughs> so he knows that other guys are going to be palming them on him from time to time. And uh, so, 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 you know, you should learn, as we, we're all taught the rules of good, right? From the time we're little kids, you're, ter you're taught... Uh, Good. You're taught the rules of good. You're taught the ethos of good, the ethics of of, uh, of uh, truth and beauty. You are. I mean, they're on uh, calendar slogans all over the place, you know. But if we were also taught the ethics of evil, we would then know the alpha and the omega. And by the time we're eighteen and nineteen, we would not be particularly surprised at Watergate. That doesn't mean we would. Uh, we would uh, approve of it, but we would not be continuing. Oh, I'm so disillusioned. Do you realize? You know, oh, come on. Now, one of my very first, uh, one of my, uh, speaking of evil, do you have the uh, money button there ready? The single most exciting basketball player in America. Yeah. Julius Irving is now a New York net. <laughs> Dr. J with more moves than Bobby Fischer. Everything you've ever heard about him is true. And you'll be able to see Julius Irving performing his magic act with a basketball in the Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum for the New York Nets 
But make sure you get your season tickets now. Call 516-294-6400. Hey, you know, that's a whole new way of selling sports. And nothing to do with the team, you know. Uh, can, can you imagine what would have happened had, uh, had uh, you know, this, this technique of selling sports, you know, the whole new big star comes on the scene. He's fantastic, unbelievable, he's magic. Uh, can you imagine how it would have been in uh, have they discovered this, say, about, uh, you know, like 150 years, like 100 years ago when the big guys were playing? Uh, give me a little echo chamber. Yes, 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 yes. The Bay Bambino, Bambino is now a New York Yankee. Everything you've heard about Babe Ruth, everything you've heard about the Bambino is true. He eats like a, like a monster. He swings a big bat. He strides big and heavy up to the plate. Come and watch the magic, the fantastic magic of Babe Ruth at the New York Yankee Stadium next weekend. The Babe is now a Yankee. Uh, <laughs> I would have gone over pretty well with his teammates, you know, the other guys. Can you imagine how it would feel to be playing uh, in the chorus line back of what's his name, Doc Irving? Is that his name? Have you noticed everybody today is named Irving, Sam, Clifford? Uh, this is WOR, New York, your Irving station in New York. And uh, let's see, one of the most dramatic changes in the field of independent school education is that this is a commercial, friends, is the desire of today's student to retain his family and community identity while preparing for college. Is this true? This change has prompted... That's a change. This change has prompted the Cheshire Academy of Cheshire, Connecticut, to introduce a five-day boarding plan starting September 17th. And uh, the Cheshire Academy has an outstanding record of placing college candidates in colleges throughout the U.S., after 179 years, the average class size is still only 13 students. It's an unlucky number. There are now some openings in most grades. To solve any transportation problems, the Academy will also arrange for a weekend bus transportation from selected metropolitan areas. Cheshire offers a college prep course, grades 7 to 12, and postgraduate work. There is a co-ed day school community with local transportation arrangements. It's a great school. For information, write or phone Cheshire Academy, Cheshire, Connecticut, as in the cat, Cheshire, Connecticut. Phone, the area code, 203-272-5396. I repeat, the area code, 203-272-5396. Nice one. Uh, Do you have another one in there for me, Herb, please? When you ask tough questions, you better have the answers. And we do. Example, the beer you drink. Do you really like its flavor, or do you drink it out of habit? Do you know there's one absolutely great-tasting beer? Do you know it's Ballantine? Why don't you try a Ballantine beer tonight? Who do we think we are asking these tough questions? The people with the answer. The only answer. Ballantine. Yes, uh, brewed by P. Ballantyne. Do they mean that commercial was brewed up by him or what? I guess they mean the beer, right? Brewed by the P. Ballantyne Brewing Company, Cranston, Rhode Island. Ballantyne, Ballantyne. No. Ballantyne. 
Yes, well, I, I uh, to return to our original premise that evil is as much a part of man as good, and one must know something about evil. Uh, I, this is a highly educational show we're doing here tonight and is done as part of the vast public service programming here on this station so that you know a little bit about evil. In fact, we're making available, for those of you who would like to take advantage of this uh, educational offer, uh, we're making available a handbook called The Seven Deadly Sins and How to Get More Out of Them. Or Are You Sinning More and Enjoying It Less? We would be delighted in uh, sending you this. Now, this is purely as a public service. It's not to be construed as advocating evil. One must know about it, however, to, to be able to fight it. And, uh, in fact, uh, recently they picked up a, a minister up in uh, Montreal, and there was quite a scene there. Did you hear about it? It was up in Montreal. They, they, I shouldn't really say they picked him up. They busted into his joint. Yeah, they really busted in about seven cops with clubs and all that, and they found that he had over 16 million feet of porno films. He had about nine projectors. He had 18 bookshelves full of some pretty juicy stuff. He had 12,000 uh, Kodachrome slides from all over the world. And when he was dragged off kicking and screaming to the Bastille, he said, but I was only studying evil so I would know what uh, the problem was when I gave my sermons. And uh, that was a, sh a kind of a shaky defense, but nevertheless, there is some uh, there is some argument that can be made in favor of that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he was reaching, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> can't uh, can't put a man down for trying. And uh, my feeling uh, here is that uh, you know you run into these things early in life. I, uh, in fact, the first time I really ran into uh, the totally unexpected evil was the time that. Uh, I was a kid, and uh, like most kids, uh, very few kids have grown up to the age of uh, 14 or 15 that haven't had like uh, 1,900 jobs. You know, little jobs. When the, you know, one way by the, you, you, how many jobs did you have by the time you were 15, Herb? I mean, little jobs, you know, like uh, uh, mow uh, Mr. Gumpox's lawn, that kind of stuff. Those are jobs, right? You're, ex you're turning pro very early in your life. You're accepting pay uh, for something. Services rendered to another human being. That is a uh, one definition of a job. <laughs> yeah. Hey, did you ever get a chance to look at the U.S. Uh, uh, the U.S. Department of uh, Labor Job Classification Handbook? You know that they have a giant handbook. Yeah, it's a. You can get it if you want to write to the U.S. Printing Service, whatever that is, you know, in Washington, and the the U.S. Department of Labor. Has a has a tremendous book, and uh, it's, it looks like the Manhattan phone book. Really, it's a big, thick book, and it has listed in uh, alphabetical order all the actual job classifications that are officially jobs in the U.S. Uh, Labor Department's files. Which means uh, it's a wild jobs. For example, uh, <laughs> one of the one of the ones I had I had my hands on one of these books one day. And they have they have jobs you wouldn't believe are really jobs, you know, like flagpole sitter. Uh, yes, if you accept money uh, sitting a flagpole at a county fair someplace, uh, that's your job. And it has a number after it. So it's a, these are like MOS. You know what the MOS is? Well, the MOS is the, is an Army classification. It's uh, your specialized number. So if uh, the Army, uh, it doesn't write after your name. Uh, uh, he uh, fixes uh, radios. Uh, they have a number. It's called the MOS number. So uh, 
they'll have your name, say, uh, Charles W. Gumpox, uh, PFC, uh, 1798-9403. This is his uh, serial number. After it'll say uh, 292-794-521-698. And that means all the various things that he's been trained to do, that he does. Now, some of them are pretty exotic, like uh, shoot flamethrowers, throw uh, hand grenades. Uh, you know, all these various things. And then there's some very prosaic things like a drive truck, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, operate dishwashing machine, number seven. That's uh, MSG7429 slash D. Uh, he can't work the other models. He's very specialized. Because that's another MOS because the other, nom- uh, other number, other machine there. So every one of us has, whoever you might be, no matter what your job is, friend, whatever it is you do, there is a U.S. labor job classification number for your job. Now, you would probably think, oh, come on, what, what are they talking about? They're ridiculous. Not that silly, fat-headed job I've got. Nobody knows if I've got a number of that. Yes, there is a number. If you're a flunky, you can find flunky listed under their job classification. There is, it is listed, flunky. It really is. Gopher. Did you ever hear the term Gopher. All right, that's a person who only goes for coffee, goes out and gets sandwiches for the guys that are really doing the stuff. There is a job classification called Gopher Senior, Gopher Junior, Apprentice Gopher. There are three different classifications of Gopher. It's true. (laughs) One of my favorite ones that I found in this book was Cracker Stacker. There is a a job classification, Cracker Stacker. I'm not kidding you. <laughs> what does he do when he does what it sounds like? Stacks crackers. That's right. That uh, in a cracker factory, apparently there is, uh, you know, some places don't have a machine that stacks, and they have a guy that stacks them up like that, and they put a package on them. <laughs> there he is, cracker stacker, and his number is six SJ seven GTX. And uh, there he. And anytime you, uh, you know, uh, the, the Department of Labor can look on on your file, and they see right there what you do. You stack crackers. You know what that is. And so uh, I, one of my very earliest jobs taught me some curious evil, which I will relate to you, and I will tell you this. This is something you should probably not listen to if you're a sensitive type person. Because there are large numbers of people I know who really believe in uh, greeting cards, you know, uh, who believe in Mother's Day and, and uh, all those nice things. They do. They're not putting down. They just believe in them. That, uh, you know, man is essentially a beautiful creature. It's only evil society that uh, wrecks him. Of course, this is, this is in itself kind of a tricky uh, philosophical question. A lot of people tend to separate themselves from society. They believe that they are they. I am Charles J. Bullard. It is society that is destroying me. Yeah, you know, it implies that society is something separate from him. Now, somewhere, undoubtedly, there is somebody who believes that he is being ground down by Charles G. Bullard. Hence, Mr. Bullard is society to somebody else. One is never society to oneself. One is only society to the others. That's uh, Shepherd's Rule of Thumb number 14D. It's under a basic, dull, philosophical concepts. You'll find that listed in the Blue Book exam. I hope you've taken notes on that, because that's going to come up. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, I'm, you know, I'm this kid. I'm walking around, 
And there was this old duffer that lived about uh, two blocks down the street there. And uh, his name was Mr. Scott. I, I often remember Mr. Scott because it was through Mr. Scott, inadvertently, he was very innocent, uh, that I learned the true face of evil. Or at least one facet of the true face of evil. There's no such thing as the true face of evil. No, indeed. <laughs> evil has many faces. <laughs> Bye, George. But uh, nevertheless, uh, <laughs> sometimes it doesn't even have a face. It just has claws. You know, <laughs> it doesn't come around with a face on it. But uh, nevertheless, I'm, I'm sitting around as a kid. And, uh, and uh, as usual, most kids are scratching for dough. This has not uh, changed since the days of Ptolemy. Uh, when you're a junior pharaoh, you don't have much dough, really, compared to the big pharaohs. And uh, it's all a matter of uh, perspective. I'm, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that uh, that uh, the Rockefellers' kids think that they uh, they don't have any have <laughs> dough. Oh yeah, I've seen them. And so uh, it's all a matter of perspective. And I, I was just scratching around. It was a hot summer day. I, uh, you know, I was uh, down on my uppers. And in fact, I, I have to tell you that almost invariably we are drawn into evil through our own basic greed. Uh, my greed in that period of time was a cert- uh, really centered around model airplanes. Did you ever go through the model airplane thing? I don't think you did, Jerry, did you? Huh? Well, that's, uh, I mean, the real, you either have it, it's like pregnancy, you either are, you ain't. You can't just say, well, I built one once. That's, that's not the, that's not the same way. Uh, that when you get into the model airplane thing, really get into it, it is a madness that even transcends the stamp madness. And, uh, it does. And it becomes quite expensive. Uh, you start going out, you know, and you start buying these, uh, these one-eighth balsa lingerons. <laughs> you start buying, yeah, oh, can, you know, and, and when, you're, when your average weekly income is maybe 18, 19 cents, it, uh, it gets pretty rough around the edges. So, naturally, I was casting about looking for a source of additional income. And uh, I found out through another kid that there was such a source. And that what I should do is go down and see Mr. Scott because a kid named Stanley Roper had been working for Mr. Scott, and now Stanley Roper was away at summer camp, and quite possibly I could uh, make myself a couple of bucks taking over his job. So I went down to see Mr. Scott. He was a very, he was an ancient guy who, who was uh, all totally white. He impressed me as being completely white. He had white hair, white skin. He wore these white, uh, white shirts all the time. So the old gentleman type, you know, always wears suspenders with white shirts, and he had a tie on all the time in the middle of the heat. And, uh, and he had a house that was made out of brick. And around the house was this big lawn. And it was a really nice lawn. It was a big lawn, and around the back of the house had a fence. It was a big lawn, a really big lawn. Big, it had a couple of trees in the middle of it. And the lawn was terraced. It had a kind of a sloping terrace like... And so I go up on the porch there, and I knock on the door, and Mr. Scott comes out. And he says, yes. I said, to Mr. Scott, uh, I live uh, down the, uh, two blocks down, and, and I hear that uh, Stanley Roper has been uh, working for you, and he doesn't work anymore for you. Yes, yes, yes. He mowed my lawn twice a week. And I said, well, uh, I'd be delighted to uh, give you his job while he's away at camp. I was wondering who I would get. So I took over the job. 
Now, I earned one dollar and a half per day, which was pretty good. Yes, that was unbelievable, in fact, uh, to mow the lawn. Now, what I would do, I would go there on Monday, and I would go there usually on Thursday. So twice a week, I would go out. And the reason he wanted it mowed all the time like that is because he had this great grass, and if you didn't mow it uh, regularly, it would be so tough to mow that it would cause problems. And so I would go there twice a week and mow the lawn. I would go there about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I would mow the lawn until around 5, and uh, he would bring out lemonade. Yeah, it was kind of nice, see, and I would mow the lawn. Now, he had one of these little things that you use to, to cut the grass right along the side of the sidewalk. You know, these little things had a little, a little wheel on it, and you want to roll it along, see? Well, I would get out that thing, and I would... You know, I was really kind of proud of this one, because I really worked on it. And this, this went for about, oh, maybe a month. And I was uh, I was really, you know, fitting in on this thing. I took care of the lawn. I was a professional lawn taker-carer-over. Uh, you know, I was a professional horticulturist. And I suppose somewhere in the U.S. Department of... Uh, labor, job classifications, there was a little note for guys like me. And I was earning a cool $3 a week, which was, you know, kept me in the airplane dope. Those were the days when people actually built airplanes out of airplane dope, out of airplane glue. Uh, (laughs) No, I mean, if you sniffed it, you only sniffed it inadvertently. Like one time I was down in the basement, and I had this this, uh, card table that I was using. I had an old card table, which I had resurrected from the junk that I used to build model airplanes on. I'll tell you why a card table is particularly good for building model airplanes. Now, there were desks, there were tables around the house, but this was a card table because the top of the card table was made out of some kind of pressed cardboard material, and you could stick pins into it easily. Now, you follow? Okay. So when you're, you put your plans out, you'd, you'd lay your plans out, you'd stick the pins in, you're making the side of the, the fuselage, you know, and you're pinning the wings down, all that stuff. It was a really great thing to build model airplanes on. Well, the reason I built them down in the basement was because after four or five giant firestorms we had in the house of my, my mother flipping because of paper and pieces of uh, uh, balsa wood and, and uh, pins and junk all over the floor, she says, you're not going to build these airplanes up here anymore. Either that or you're going to have to clean it up every day. Well, you know, when you're building an airplane, it takes like a month of working on this plane. If you had to clean it up all the time, you know, you'd have to move it and all that. So I did. And uh, it had a low ceiling. You got that. The basement, a low ceiling. It also did not have what, what, what you'd call ideal ventilation, the basement, since it was a basement. It had a couple of these little tiny windows, you know, that were at ground level with a little concrete thing around it, you know, and, and uh, it was also cool down there, see. So on one hot afternoon, I'm down there working away, and I remember what I was doing. What I was doing caused the problem. I had finished this wing, the airplane in question. If you're curious what type of airplane it was, it was a Grumman, uh, Grumman F-3F which was a fighter-type Navy plane. And I had a really kit, beautiful airplane. And uh, I, had, uh, I, had finished the <laughs> I had finished the wing, and I, uh, the wing was covered with this Japanese rice paper. Now, covering an airplane wing and covering, an, in fact, a fuselage of that type, it was an oval fuselage, is an art form in itself. That is one of the most difficult parts of building a model airplane, is covering an airplane properly. Well... I was pretty good at it after 
building, uh, you know, about 500 bad models. I was finally getting really good at it. And so I had made this beautiful wing, and I, was, I decided it was not going to be a flying model. It was going to be a scale model. It, it, it would fly if I wanted to. But I wanted it to be a scale model to hang from the ceiling. Beautiful scale model of an F-3F, a Grumman a fighter plane, a Navy fighter plane with the... With the, uh, with the fuselage all beautifully covered, and it had uh, retractable landing gear that pulled up into the fuselage, the two wheels up against Yes, that's the F3F. So also the F2F was something like that, too. So I, was, I built this model, and, and, it, and now I was in the process of covering it. Now, to make the decision whether it's going to be a, a scale model, which is not a, is a non-flying model, or a scale flying model involved really basically weight. Some things you did uh, to make it a flying model, you didn't do to make it a scale model, vice versa. Well, one of the things you did to make it a scale model was to spray the wings, now get this, with a very fine solution of aircraft dope. That's what you call sniffing glue today. <laughs> aircraft dope which you mixed with a thinner, and you had a sprayer, and you sprayed your wings with this. Now, that made the wing pretty heavy, but it also made it beautiful and tough, and it made it very tight. It was just like a real... Yeah, oh, it, it stretched beautifully. See. So I'm down there with a spray, and it was the kind of spray thing that, uh, that they... Have you ever seen the type that you... that artists use that you screw into a bottle and you blow into with your lips, like that? It produces a... A pressure and it, it atomizes stuff. So I'm blowing this stuff away. See, you have to very fast because it dries like Billy B. Day. You wouldn't believe in it. It dry as fast as aircraft dope. So I'm blowing. I flip the wing over and I take the bottom side. Of well, I took the wing then and 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 held it up. Looking at it through the light, there was a dim light down there, and I could see this, this stuff is drying fast. As soon as it dried, it took about eight milliseconds, I did it again. I was going to do four coats on each wing, and four wings. Yeah. Four halves of wings. About the third one, I couldn't figure out what's happening. I, I, I felt the, the whole the whole... The whole room was tilting. <laughs> and I got, I got practically sleepy. I was really sleepy. And I'm blowing this stuff on this, this wing, and I, and I just was overcome at that point by an incredible lassitude. I mean, real fantastic feeling of, of, uh, of like I was melting. I was completely melting, and I just sort of drifted off, and I'm sitting down there. And I, and I don't remember much of what happened at that point. I just sitting there, see, and my kid brother came down. That I do recall. My kid brother came down, and he said something to me, and I heard him running upstairs. The next thing I know, my old man is down there, my mother is down there, and I'm being dragged out of the basement. Apparently, they they, they didn't even know about this this airplane stuff. I, I, in other words, what I'm saying here is that that I made a discovery, which many people have discovered, but I did it empirically. Uh, just by experimentation, I was bombed out of my skull. Just blowing stuff on that wing of that airplane. So, here I was. I was deeply involved in the model airplane mystique. I wanted to buy, I was, I was saving up to buy 
this this beautiful gas model motor that that they had down at the hobby shop. I saw it in the window there all the time, and I was reading about it all the time in the model airplane magazines. And I was going to make a big move into this this motor. Now this is essential to the to the plot. And one day I talked to Mister Mister Scott. See, we were sitting out there drinking our lemonade. Mister Scott says, "What do you do with your money?" And I said, "Well, I I do a lot of things. You know, I I uh, I." Uh, you know, I buy fielders mitts and uh, you know all that kind of stuff, and I'm I'm going to buy this model airplane motor, this gas motor. Oh, it's very interesting. You building model airplanes? Yes, I do. And he said, oh, "That's very nice. How much did it cost?" Well, I named this figure. It was very expensive for me. It was like eighteen dollars. <laughs> and oh, it's very interesting. So time went on, and I continued to mow the lawn, and I continued to spend. Uh, long, dreamy mornings and late evenings down in the basement, building Curtis Robbins, building uh, Gullwing Stinsons, building beautiful models. I had my whole seating in my bedroom covered, hang, hanging models, just hanging in all kinds of great-looking models. And one day, after having mowed the lawn on Thursday, it happened on a Friday. I'm downstairs working on the model. And I heard a phone ring upstairs. And my mother comes to the landing. She says, Gee. I says, Yes. Would you come up here quick? What's up, you know? So I, you know, I, I, here I am. I'm holding a piece of, 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 uh, of uh, balsa wood that I'm trying to glue. Have you ever tried to glue something? You spend most of your time holding that thing. And uh, so it doesn't spring apart. <laughs> oh, man. And I said, oh, wait a minute. I'm holding something. She said, you've got to come up there right away. I said, what am I going to do? So I took the whole damn fuselage upstairs, still holding it. See, I go upstairs. And I'm holding it like that. I'm putting these lawns around it. And she says, the police are on the phone. I said, the what? The police are on the phone. They want to talk to you. What the hell? At which point, I very carefully put my fuselage down. I didn't care whether she flew apart or not. I'm going to answer the phone, so I picked up the phone. And this guy says, are you uh, are you the kid that uh, mows Mr. Scott's lawn? I says, yes, I am. And you come down uh, to Mr. Scott's house. Uh, we're down here now. We'd like to talk to you right away. I said, me? Yes, you've got to come down right away. This is Sergeant O'Gonagall. Make sure that you're down here in the next ten minutes. <laughs> I held up the phone. I get on a street. He's two blocks away, remember. And I get on my bike and I go pedaling down the street. And when I get down there, here were about four squad cars all around Mr. Scott's house with the lights going. And I could not believe what I saw. Unbelievable. Well, I'll just have to tell you basically what it was. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. It was then that I saw the first incident in my life, the true face of evil. Man's mind is capable of incredible, incredible circular locutions of evil. If you think you've seen it all, friends, you have not even seen one tiny iota, one smidgen, one bitsy-itsy piece of it. There were the squad cars. There was Mr. Scott up on his porch talking to about seven patrolmen, gigantic cops. And I 
saw what had happened. Somebody during the night had stolen Mr. Scott's lawn. The entire lawn was gone. It was nothing but dirt. I go over on the porch and I said, what happened? And Mr. Scott turned to me and says, that's him, that's him. I said, what do you mean? That's me, yeah, I, 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 that's me. And the cop says, are you the kid that mows Mr. Scott's lawn? Your name's Shepard? Yeah, yeah. All right, come on inside. We want to talk to you. I went into the living room, Mr. Scott's house, the first time I've ever been inside, and he had all these little pots of plants growing. There was cats running around. And I sat down on a couch. And the cop says, you left here last night at what time? <laughs> five o'clock. I, I think it was about five, five fifteen. And that was the last time you saw Mr. Scott's lawn until this very minute? Yeah, I, it is. Are you aware that somebody arrived here last night when Mr. Scott was asleep? With trucks and with equipment and removed that entire lawn? No. <laughs> All right, kid, sit down. Are you aware of how much this lawn costs? I never it never occurred to me that lawns were worth money. Twelve dollars a square yard for the type of sod that Mr. Scott had on his lawn. I stole two thousand dollars worth of lawn. Two thousand bucks. Well, I questioned me for about an hour. And finally, one of the cops says, you stay around town. We may need you for further questioning. And Mr. Scott was plucking at his handkerchief, looking worried. And I said, I didn't do it, Mr. Scott. He says, I know you didn't, son. And I went home. And my mother was sitting on the front porch waiting for me. She was scared. After all, it isn't every day that the kid gets called down to talk to the cops. And apparently there was something in my face. My face was, you know, like the color of old mashed potatoes. She said, what happened? What happened? What'd you do? I said, Ma, nothing. I, 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 I didn't do nothing. The police wanted to talk to me. She said, what about? Mr. Scott's lawn. She said, what about Mr. Scott's lawn? Said, Somebody stole it. Somebody stole Mr. Scott's lawn? I said, yes, Ma. Will you stop lying to me? I'll tell you what they wanted to hear from you. That's what it's about. Somebody stole Mr. Scott's lawn. And they thought maybe I knew something about it. Well, for about ten minutes, she didn't believe me. And then she slowly came around. And from that minute on, I realized that I had never turned my back on that basic knowledge. Nothing is safe from the evil ones. If the evildoers want to steal the Great Pyramid at Giza, damn it, they will.